Hello, and welcome to Raising Health, where we explore the real challenges and enormous opportunities facing the entrepreneurs who are building the future of health. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode is with Joe Grogan, who is currently serving as senior fellow at the Leonard D. Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics at the University of Southern California. He has also held a number of senior government positions, most recently as the Associate Director of Health at the Office of Management and Budget and as a domestic policy advisor to former President Donald Trump. He is joined by Vijay Pandey, General Partner at A16Z Bio and Health. Joe shared his experience working in government during the early days of the COVID pandemic, as well as his opinions on the IRA as it relates to drug pricing and R&D. It's already warping R&D programs. I mean, when you talk to companies, in the past, when Congress passed something on drug pricing or, or they, they changed regulatory structure, the heads of R&D, they did not freak out. Mm. The heads of commercial lost some sleep, but they were like, we'll figure a way around this. But after the IRA passed, the heads of R&D, the heads of commercial, everybody sits around now and they're like, how are we going to work in this structure? Joe also shared his thoughts about AI regulation and how policymakers could approach this technology. These regulations, the executive order, they're all fear-mongering. I think this is a huge opportunity. I don't think the regulations will prevent anything bad from happening, but I do believe they could severely inhibit innovation in this space. And the U.S. needs to dominate it because our competitors sure as hell are not going to be held back by concerns around this issue. They want to dominate it. They want to eat our lunch. And we have to have AI if we are going to get cost compression in healthcare and better outcomes. You're listening to Raising Health from A16Z Bio and Health. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining us on Raising Health. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. You know, you recently headed the Domestic Policy Council during the Trump administration. It's a very important role. What was your mindset going into that type of role, uh, especially in a charged political environment? I was fortunate in that I had worked in the Bush administration uh, seven years at Health and Human Services, two at FDA. I ran the Presidential Advisory Council on HIV and AIDS. And I had worked at the Administration for Children and Families. So I'd gotten an education in the nuts and bolts of government. And then at the beginning of the Trump administration, I was at the Office of Management and Budget, uh, which is on the White House complex. It's in the adjacent building to the, the proper White House. And I was focused on healthcare. I was the Associate Director for Health. And that was really um, an intense job. It was a great job, in many ways, the best job I ever had great team of people. So by the time I became domestic policy advisor, I had a lot of experience. I went into it knowing I will probably never have the opportunity to work in the West Wing again. And then by the time I left in May, 2020, it was time for me to go. You're gonna bust your butt and leave it all on the table. Oh, that's the way to do it. I think uh, must have been kind of uh, very, obviously very special thing to be uh, in the White House during COVID such a sort of monumental thing in terms of the history of healthcare. And what was it like being on the job in those times, especially in the early days of COVID? Look, there are always these healthcare epidemics that pop up. You know, there's a big screen at HHS, a whole wall of screens where they're showing various outbreaks all over the world of various things that are concerning people, concerning the Center for Disease Control. And the presidential daily brief frequently make mention Hey, listen, there's a new outbreak of Marburg. 
in mm -hmm. uh, the Congo and three people have died or it's in Angola. Sometimes you need to deploy public health people. The CDC will go in. Sometimes the WHO gets involved. They can they can bubble up to to concern and even deployment of American assets, but most of the time they burn out. You know whether it's a food uh, safety outbreak or an ill uh, you know epidemic, a infectious disease. So in the beginning, you're watching this and you're like, is this like everything else? Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you start to go, wait a second. And the first reaction when you're a domestic policy advisor, because you have a policy hat, but you also have a political hat is, wait a second, is this going to be a political liability if we don't get organized really quick on this mm. and we need to be prepared? And that was my original thing. Like this is now, there's now enough traffic about this. I'm hearing about it. It may burn out, but we need to make sure that we're prepared if it doesn't, that, that it's not a mess. And I think I was the first uh, person the first assistant to the president to call for a meeting on the subject. And we had a meeting mm. in the chief of staff's office with a number of other senior people. And I said, look, if we don't get organized, this is going to cost us the election. And that was in, that was in January. And we started wow. to scramble and, uh, and get ready for it. And it only got worse. You know, the numbers only got worse. The, the spread only got worse. The response only got worse. The opacity of the Chinese only got worse, but it, I would have given anything that I was being overly concerned, you know, that, that it was like, sure. oh, Grogan's being paranoid. We just <laughs> wasted time in this meeting. And it's just like so many other, um, diseases of concern. It just going to burn out. Well, well, was there something that in particular that you saw that made it different than SARS before or something else? Like what was the turning point for you? It's funny. I was looking at the, at some of the, daily briefs at the president, Intel briefs. And I just had a bad feeling that mm. maybe I wasn't getting Intel from HHS. Mm. I was getting more from the health department of health and human services. I wasn't getting calls from them, but I was close with Bob Redfield, the head of the CDC. I had known him, uh, from the Bush administration. He was on the presidential advisory uh, Council on HIV and AIDS, and he spent a lot of time educating me on that disease. And he called me up and he said, you know, this is starting to get me a little worried. Gottlieb was out of the government at the time, and he and I started oh. talking, and I started to see Twitter traffic. But, you know, weird things started to happen. The Nor I can't remember the timeline, but the North Koreans shut down their border with China. And I was like, mm -hmm. man, if the North Koreans are shutting their border down with China, and those dudes are concerned... Uh, we should be pretty freaked out about what's mm. going on because this isn't just the Chinese overreacting. Uh, this is other countries around them, and the North Koreans can't really afford to be shutting their border down. And it was just a confluence of a lot of things that came together all at once. But then, you know, you, you end up on the coronavirus task force. What was that like? And how do you, like, even start to go after something like this? Like, you know, how do you set priorities? Pretty quickly, Vice President Pence took over. He had a lot of attributes that were positive. He'd been a governor, and we knew we were going to need mm -hmm. governors. He had been a member of Congress, and we were going to need to communicate with Congress. He was well-respected as an honest broker. The president respected him. Uh, he had a good team on the VP staff. His chief of staff was a friend of mine. His policy uh, lead had worked with me at OMB. But what the table was huge in the situation sure. room and you had to have everybody there. I mean, 
remember in the beginning, our number one focus to the point of distraction was this lunacy of cruise ships calling up and saying, we have COVID on our cruise ship and all these passengers are infected. We just had somebody die. Um, We have our crews infected and we are now quarantined in Japan. We're, and and there were false reports of COVID on ships and and panic. And Mm -hmm. we were evacuating uh, crews with the Centers for Disease Control, the State Department, the Department of Transportation, like everybody's involved in this. It is not a minor issue to bring a boatload of American citizens off of a cruise ship with other citizens, evacuate them in a way that the pilots of those planes are not going to get infected, that the medical crews are not going to get infected. It was a huge logistical thing to the point of, like everybody's having this discussion around evacuating a cruise ship. And then we were like, we could spend all our time just working on various cruise and then cruise ship stuff. Meanwhile, there's other things going on, like we're trying to get PPE, you know, the right. personal protective equipment, the masks, the gloves, right. where are we going to get all this stuff? And so, you know, looking back on it, you wouldn't say, oh, who was around the table? Of course, the head of the Center, Center for Disease Control, of course, the head of Health and Human Services. No, like every agency was represented because... You needed Homeland Security because they have people at airports that are going to be checking to see if people have fevers. And you have every single department looking at this stuff, deployed, concerned about it. The Treasury Department, of course, was a massive economic problem. Mm -hmm. We were shutting travel down from Europe after we shut it, which is a much bigger economic issue than shutting down travel from China. We had ports backing up. So it was just... To say it was a fire hose is an understatement. It was about 40 fire hoses shooting constantly. You do one big meeting where people would go through top line subjects. They would go back and then everybody would be hustling on a gazillion elements of those issues and dozens more. I could spend the whole time just talking about COVID since it's so fascinating and so important for the future. But I think we got two other, I think, pretty top, important topics I want to get to as well. Uh, how about let's switch gears to talk about the uh, talk about drug pricing and especially the most recent Inflation Reduction Act. You know, you've written several opinion pieces on uh, IRA and its implementation and so on. Could you summarize sort of uh, your, your take on on the IRA for the audience? Well, so the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act had, I mean, some. if you're not in healthcare, you're focused on the elements of electric vehicle subsidies and all mm-hmm. this other um, renewable energy subsidies that were inserted into the bill. But for people in healthcare, the big component is the price controls for drugs. And they came up with a very convoluted structure and in, and they rammed it through without any Republican votes. Now, as an initial matter, all drug pricing legislation in the past had been done on a bipartisan basis. Uh, Orrin Hatch, Republican senator mm-hmm. from Utah, Henry Waxman, one of the most liberal Democrat members from California collaborated to create basically the structure for the generic drug industry to take off. And it was a, it was a balance of innovators get X number of years for getting, becoming the first to market and spending all that money on R and D and winning the race and over that and for getting new indications, they get extended protection and, and marketing exclusivity 
uh, and data exclusivity, so it can't be shared with other people. And then boom, generic companies can come in and prices will collapse and it's gonna become a commodity-based structure. Well, the IRA ran, it was totally partisan. So as an initial matter, your, your hair should be up on the, because there's no way to build decent legislation without compromise mm -hmm. of access and innovation in this space. And it's all focused on setting prices for innovative drugs. Uh, and it's going to be a real problem. I mean, I'm a firm believer that government setting price controls is not only inefficient, but it always everywhere leads to shortages. There is no way you can tell the marketplace that, that somebody in, in remotely can, can push on a marketplace and say, this is the price that we believe. It didn't work in the basement of the Politburo when the <laughs> colonists were doing it for wheat. It is sure as hell not going to do it for anything more co as complicated as drug R&D. And it's going to collapse. I mean, the other thing they did was they, they inserted in there to circumvent the Administrative Procedures Act, which people roll their eyes and, and are like, what the hell's that? Well, it gives private industry and stakeholders an opportunity to comment, to force government to build an evidence base for their regulatory actions and what they do to private sector. And Congress just said, oh, you don't really need to do these things anymore. You don't need to issue regulation. So I'm very despondent about the direction of the Inflation Reduction Act. And, and let me just say this. At the beginning of the Biden administration, look, I'm a Republican. I, I didn't vote for Biden, of course. But I, as any American would, new president, I want to be an optimist, right? And he built... Uh, he started his administration with potentially what would have been a golden age for biomedical innovation. He put Eric Lander from the mm -hmm. Broad Institute in charge of Office of Science, Technology, and Policy. He brought in a ton of people with biopharmaceutical expertise into, the, into that office. Janet Woodcock was acting at the Food and Drug Administration. I was hopeful she was going to get confirmed. We had other people. He, he talked about the cancer moonshot. Um, right. He had other people that around him that believed in biopharmaceutical innovation. You look at it now, you know, Janet's retiring as so many other great people at FDA have. Lander got blown out. They pursued idiotic legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act, which makes a mockery of cancer moonshot because so many companies have been canceling cancer programs lately. Right. And it's very sad for patients today and tomorrow. But then there's this nuance of um, small molecule, you know, the pills, they have pretty severe uh, limits, but biologics like antibodies are not, uh, not as bad. It also therefore sets up this, I think, unintended consequence that you'll get all these more expensive drugs because you could have a small molecule or you could have an antibody. A pharma company now would be incented to do the antibody uh, and actually would end up causing patients more. Absolutely. It's already warping R&D programs. I mean, when you talk to companies, in the past, when Congress passed something on drug pricing or, or they, they changed reg, you know, the regulatory structure, the heads of R&D, they did not freak out. Hmm. The heads of commercial lost some sleep, but they were like, we'll figure a way around this. But after the IRA passed, it is consistent that the heads of R&D, the heads of commercial, everybody sits around now and they're like, how are we going to work in this structure? And one of the more moronic things that they've done now is if you are an orphan, if you have an orphan drug 
um, indication so that's a very small population. We built a whole incentive structure for this, by the way, in the, in right. the United exactly. States to encourage companies to do it. And now if you have more than one indication, you are subject to the negotiations. And so who's going to do that second? Who's going to do the research to develop it? No one's going to go for that indication because your entire economic motivation has been blown to kingdom come. For me personally, I have a lot of empathy for people who can't get the healthcare they want, but I also have empathy for the patients that are going to die because they don't have the treatments that could have existed. And I think that second part, I think, is the part that people don't look at. And uh, it's going to be a challenge. I think it's until healthcare, I think, is viewed differently, we're going to be in the situation where it's going to be crippled. I think with good intentions with, I think, unexpected outcomes. Right. I mean, look, the most expensive drug is the one that's not developed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you are a patient who has no options, regardless of, of cost, price, whatever, you're as poor as it gets. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Frequently, a very expensive drug can be companies make it available at cost, make it available for free. And eventually, it, with the structure that Hatch-Waxman created, it'll go generic. So the, it's a balance that you've got to create. And um, it, that's why I, I'm a firm believer in bipartisanship in this area, because mm -hmm. it takes push and pull, compassion and economic understanding, and an understanding of the innovation ecosystem to actually make it work. Yeah, so maybe one last question, and we'll move on to the last topic. Where can we go from here? You talked about bipartisanship. That's, that makes sense that it's got to be part of it. But like, where do we go from here, given that the IRA is law? Well, it's an irony that the same summer that they passed the IRA, which did grievous damage to our, our pharmaceutical industry and opened the door to do even more, um, they also passed the CHIPS Act. Mm-hmm in order to incentivize microchip development. So we used to dominate that industry, right? Then suddenly it all goes overseas. And now we've got, then we decided, oh, we need to spend a bunch of subsidies and do all this innovate, you know, do all this government spending to incentivize and create an American industry again. Well, we dominate biopharmaceutical innovation, right? But the Chinese wanna eat our lunch. There's more research being done in Singapore there are always other countries that want to take our industries and our competitive advantage away. Unfortunately, I think if we don't revisit this issue shortly, we're going to be do, having to do a CHIPS Act for the biopharmaceutical industry in 20 years, where we're going to sit there and go, holy smokes, mm. how is it that we used to develop 80 to 90% of new molecules in the United States? How is it that we used to lead over and over again and that we were the engine and suddenly we're down to 60, 40, 20% because the Chinese are doing this, because the Koreans are doing this, because the Japanese are doing it. Um, maybe the Europeans will wake up or some of the countries will wake up and start doing it. So what I would like to see is some type of rationality brought around the the drug pricing provisions in a bipartisan fashion to say, hey, look, it, every once in a while, there's going to be a rogue actor, um, you know, a Martin Scarelli or some company that goes out there and, and sees an arbitrage opportunity and cranks it way up. And maybe there's a mar there's an intervention that could be done 
um, because patents are granted by the government. Marketable exclusivity is granted by the government. Maybe there's a way in the, if there's a generic drug out there that somebody has cranked up that it could be, we could contract with somebody to sell it and have a second supplier. Maybe there's a, a way we could have, we could have licensing be done to create more manufacturers if there was a shortage situation. But I think ultimately what you need is innovation on the payment side. We've had tons of innovation. The bulk of my career and when I first came to DC was spent around getting drugs through FDA more, more flexibility around FDA scientific approvals. We have not devoted that level of flexibility to the reimbursement for drugs. You should have a plethora of different ways mm -hmm. to purchase drugs in this country and to get coverage for yourself. You know, unfortunately, we're going the other way on reimbursement. The Biden administration just wants the Affordable Care Act to dominate the entire commercial market. And it's so heavily regulated. You know, we should have value-based contracting. We should have bulk mm -hmm. contracting. We should have different per guys like Mark Cuban who are diving into generic distribution. Yep. He, should, he should come up with 10 different products next year if this market was deregulated. And we would have more competition in purchasing and, and, and more ways for people to access drugs and more reimbursement innovation for all types of healthcare. And unfortunately, we don't have that. So I'd like to see different types of coverage be done and and more, not the trend towards one size fits all. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So let's switch gears. My personal belief is AI is gonna have a huge, huge impact in healthcare. We're always seeing, you know, glimpses of that. But, you know, at the same time, uh, the sort of AI's uh, ability to do things is also, I think, giving people pause. It's leading to talk about regulation, and, and obviously there's an executive order recently. You know, what's your perspective on sort of the policy regulation side of AI, uh, especially now that's becoming, I think, such an important topic? I've seen so many of these regulatory debates over my, over my time where something akin to like the Dutch tulip mania takes over where mm -hmm. suddenly the everybody needs to regulate this area. And the frenzy around and the rhetoric around regulating AI among DC politicians and policymakers, when it becomes quickly apparent they have no idea what the hell they are talking about, is is very alarming to me. I mean, I recently, and it's it's alarming on the conservative and the Republican side too. Because I kept on waiting for somebody else to step up, like on the conservative side. And finally, I got together a group of conservative healthcare thinkers because I didn't want to bring in tech people necessarily. I wanted to confront it from a health perspective on the conservative side and say, guys, shouldn't we get some principles out here? This is a big opportunity for healthcare. We can, are we all on the same page? We can save money. Are we all on the page? that we, we don't need another huge federal bureaucracy to regulate AI, right? We all realize that AI in transportation is gonna be different than AI for diagnostics. AI is gonna be different for drug discovery than it is gonna be for AI uh, in financial markets. There's no way that you can create one giant agency, which a lot of people, uh, particularly on the left, were talking about, so with Naomi Lopez from Goldwater Institute, we formed a, a group of conservatives kind of issues some principles around regulation because no one else was doing it. And then we taught, well, I recently had Adam Thier, who's a good conservative thinker around AI 
on a podcast that I do called DC EKG. Mm. And we, we talked about the fact that we've screwed this up before with nuclear regulation. Right. We and, screwed this up nuclear, with regulation. Nuclear, nuclear energy, nuclear power. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And we frequently create the illusion of government protection with regulation that doesn't protect us in the end. Right there, there. Every time there's a financial crisis, the response is, "Oh, we need more regulation." Well, wait, we just did more regular. Why didn't it stop it? I have so much hope for AI. As somebody who thinks there's too many federal employees who are basically looking at widgets mm-hmm. and manufacturing widgets, when we should be evaluating data. When I th- when I think about the fact that we can finally get cost compression and savings with AI, we could develop drugs more quickly. We could put tools in the hands of FDA reviewers that allows them to review data more quickly and approve a drug more quickly and spot adverse events and also have more confidence in the aftermarket surveillance to say, wait a second, there's a signal here. It turns out that suddenly uh, 65-year-old plus men with Mm -hmm. a heart condition are dropping dead and AI can spot that in a drug. Very early. And so- Right, and these regulations, the executive order, they're all fear-mongering. I don't share it. I think there's a huge opportunity. I don't think the regulations will prevent anything bad from happening, but I do believe they could severely inhibit uh, innovation in this space, and the U.S. needs to dominate it in all aspects uh, because our competitors, sure as hell, are not going to be held back by concerns around this issue. They want to dominate it. They want to eat our lunch. And we have to have AI if we are going to get uh, cost compression in healthcare and better outcomes. Yeah, We spend too much, we get terrible outcomes. Yeah, That's the irony is that this could lower costs, improve outcomes. It's exactly what we're looking for. And I think the analogy of nuclear is pretty clear in the sense that um, I don't think uh, people were thinking about, well, what's the worst that could happen if we just burn up a ton of petroleum? And now there's a lot of concern about that. Uh, and that nuclear could have avoided that. Right. And can be done safely and so on. So uh, it's it's one of these things kind of like the drugs that don't exist. Uh, those are things that people don't worry about, but those are the huge missed opportunities. But, you know, a part of politics is doing this in a bipartisan way, understanding that people have other points of view. How do we help people to see that there is so much good in what AI can do and that the doomerism, the concerns are really not concerns? How do we get that message across? Yeah, it's tough. I think we, we need to hear more from smaller innovators. I think there's a great deal of skepticism of some of the big tech companies right. who are advocating for regulation. Um, we're in a, on the right and the left right now, we're in a uh, populist moment where mm-hmm. people are skeptical of some of the bigger companies who are advocating for regulation and rightly so. I don't believe that frankly, Google is showing up in Washington, D.C. because they think that regulation in this space is going to inhibit their ability to innovate. I think they're trying to game the regulatory system sure. for their own benefit sure. and squelch competition. And, and, and that's I just what, think that's, any of the, That's their play, right? I mean, that's what probably what they should be doing if you're a Google shareholder, but not if, uh, not if you are looking for what's best for the country. Right. I mean, it, unfortunately, it is a game that that uh, it it is like the siren song for big companies. Once they get a taste of Washington D.C., they're in all the way mm-hmm. to regulate and and uh, use the regulatory system 
to punish competitors and give themselves a competitive advantage. It's one of the worst things, um, one of the most distasteful things about the DC lobbying game. And I, I was a registered lobbyist. I, I slept well at night and was proud of the work that I did. And I don't, I don't have any shame in it, but the companies, regardless of industry who try to, um, use the regulatory system for their own benefit, but more importantly, for the detriment of their competitors or a problem. And it's clearly happening in AI. So I think Americans love small companies who are winners, right? Mm. They love the innovator story, the Wright brothers, the Henry Ford, mm. they love them and they root for them. And we need to hear more voices about the opportunities that AI is creating. And we're in a race because I think the small innovators really need to show this promise as quickly as possible before these regulations start to bite and uh, before it, it really takes hold. Because I think the American people will start to see uh, the promise over the fear because I think the fear is very amorphous mm -hmm. even now. Like I don't understand what everybody is clamoring about. Like yes. what, what are they talking about? Are they, are they worried that there's going to be a huge financial crisis developed by securitized investment vehicles or credit <laughs> default swaps? We just had it. Now, dude, you know, like what the hell are you talking yeah. about? We're going to have a yeah. pandemic due to a, we just had one. I mean, like we're going to have a world war. Yeah, we've had them. I mean, what are you, what are you saying? What, what is going to be so much more damaging? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think you so beautifully sort of described all the good sides of what's coming. So looking forward to collectively supporting that and supporting founders. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was fun. It was fun. I love the conversation and I, I look forward to uh, meeting you in person, VJ, well, and here. continuing the conversation. Same here. Thank you for listening to Raising Health. Raising Health is hosted and produced by me, Chris Tatiosian, and me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z. The show is edited by Phil Hegseth. If you want to suggest topics for future shows, you can reach us at raisinghealth at a16z.com. Finally, please rate and subscribe to our show. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com disclosures. <laughs>